Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Jane Pauley. And this is Sunday morning. Former First Lady Nancy Reagan, who passed away two months ago, was widely praised for telling young people in the 1980s to just say no to drugs. So how can it be that when it comes to using marijuana, so many of today's older Americans seem to just say yes? A question for Barry Peterson to examine in our Sunday morning cover story. Some of the very people who grew up opposed to pot. You store it in the fridge. Yes. So are finding it handy to have around as they age. I have gummy care. Mm-hmm. Has the consistency of a, of a gummy. Mm-hmm. I use it for sleep and pain when I need to. Pot's newest enthusiast could be your grandparents later on Sunday morning. We think of a borderline as something which divides one country from another. And then there's the borderline our Lee Cowan has been to visit. Follow the U.S.-Canadian border from the Pacific out to the east, and it's as straight as an arrow until it reaches Minnesota, where there's an odd little bump. Do you sometimes feel more Canadian than a U.S. citizen up here? (laughs) (laughs) We are a little bit Canadian. The remote Minnesotans surrounded on almost all sides by our maple leaf friends later on Sunday morning. For the record, Mark Anthony is a singer with hit songs in two languages. He talks about that and a lot more with Tracy Smith. Mark Anthony is the biggest salsa artist in history. His sizzling songs have been known to turn full-grown women into melted butter. But it didn't begin that way. My dad always told me, and and it's God's honest truth, son, we're ugly, work on your personality. No. Swear. He said that The best thing he ever told me. The personality and the power of Mark Anthony ahead this Sunday morning. Combat Outpost Keating was the name of a small U.S. Army position in Afghanistan that came under ferocious enemy fire some years ago. What happened next is the story David Martin has to tell. The Taliban attack came from all sides, and it very nearly succeeded. How close was the enemy? Closer than what I ever thought I'd I'd see them, 10, 15 feet away. About to be overrun, Sergeant Clint Romache came up with a desperate plan. We can either sit here and and die in our last final positions or we can go out in a blaze of glory. Ahead on Sunday morning, the battle for combat outpost Keating. Mo Rocca questions a preacher about his life choices. Anthony Mason follows a tireless big city walker. Steve Hartman hears a contrite defendant tell it to the judge and more. You must have worn out a few pairs of shoes. Nine. Nine. Ahead, one man's very long walk. I always wore the same shoes. Beautiful plants. But next, the boom in boomer pot use. She said it was like pre-apocalypse status. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Can it really be true? that so many older people nowadays will just say yes, yes to using marijuana, that is. Our cover story is reported by Barry Peterson. 
Sue Taylor works hard to stay fit and stay healthy. This 68-year-old is a regular at the gym. Okay, now chard helps keep your cholesterol down. Okay. It's gonna be good. And then you. And at home, homemade is her motto. Mmm, it's delicious. It's not bad. Cheers. But there's one thing in her healthy lifestyle that may come as a surprise. In the evening, when you want to use some of the marijuana, you store it in the fridge. Yes. So she includes marijuana okay. in her quest to stay youthful. I have gummy care. Mm -hmm. Has the consistency of a, of a gummy. Mm -hmm. And I use it for sleep and pain when I need to. Sue Taylor was a high school principal preaching the dangers of drugs. But after her son got into the pot business, and as she began to learn more about marijuana, she changed her mind. Now she is a convert. Make that an advocate for aging Americans using marijuana. She speaks at community meetings, explaining why pot may be good for them. The weed lady, somebody said they called you. Yes, the weed lady. I am the weed lady. And she's got statistics on her side. Polling confirms that more and more Americans age 55 and up are using more and more marijuana. One reason is geography. Almost half of Americans live in a place where marijuana is legal for recreational or medical purposes. Beautiful plants. Sue lives in California, one of the states where medical marijuana requires only a doctor's prescription. I love this place. It is a great place, isn't it? <laughs> what are we talking about, Sue? What kinds of things does marijuana help if you're a senior? Number one is arthritis. Mm -hmm. There are tinctures and rubs that you could actually put on your legs, on your knees, across your back, wherever you're having any arthritic pain. Mm -hmm. Most seniors use the cannabis for pain and to sleep. Does it frustrate you that the money isn't there for research? Of course, but uh, I do think we're turning a corner on that. Dr. Igor Grant is a distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. And he has a rare federal grant to study the potential benefits of pot. Well, first of all, there is increasing evidence that uh, cannabis um, is helpful in the management of certain kinds of pain. And it's the kind of discomfort experienced by seniors, like sharp pains felt by nerve damage caused by things like chemotherapy or diabetes. Keep in mind, over 65 Americans only account for 14% of the nation's population, but they use more than 30% of all prescription drugs, including some highly addictive painkillers. An interesting question is, if people are prescribed cannabis, uh, does that have then an opioid sparing effect? Because uh, again, for chronic pain, we do use opioids, uh, Vicodin and drugs like this. So you mean, could it replace? So could it replace or lessen the requirement? We need studies to understand that, but I think the preliminary evidence suggests that may be true. I drop it under my tongue, about five or six drops, and that helps me sleep. Kerry Stiles is 78 and wears a pacemaker. He discovered pot here at the Rossmore Retirement Community in Walnut Creek across the bay from San Francisco. They have clubs for everything from swimming to cars. Cannabis has so many medical applications. And, so and now really a club a for medical marijuana use. So these are the three different types of plants of cannabis. And in the retirement community of more than 9,000, the club has about 100 regulars. Renee Lee is the club's president and a kind of pot guidance counselor. So we caution, especially the seniors, to stay away from edibles and really start slow. We start with low dosage. We start in the early evening, um, tell them not to drive, um, try to not to mix alcohol. We, there's a lot of caution, a lot of education that goes along with this. But for some in the over 65 crowd, Lingering stereotypes and stigmas from another time are hard to overcome. Why do you think seniors are resistant to this as opposed to 20-somethings and 30-somethings 
who don't seem to pay any attention to the stigma at all. Probably the 1960s. Our nation's pot paranoia actually dates to the 1930s. Remember reefer madness? It's hopelessly and incurably insane, a condition caused by the drug marijuana to which he was addicted. We are making a major offensive effort that's going to pay off. Then, during the Nixon administration, the federal government classified it as a Schedule I drug, the same category that includes heroin and LSD. It was publicity by the federal government and by state governments how terrible it was and what it could do to you. So these are our raw cannabis flowers. This is the way the cannabis comes. But will you change minds if more and more seniors become comfortable with this? Do you think that's going to force government to change its mind, the federal government? We certainly hope so. I don't know if it'll be in my, <laughs> in my lifetime. Keep in mind that even today, pot is still illegal under federal law. But in Colorado, the first state to sell marijuana for recreational use. Have you been surprised at how this has worked out over the last two years? I guess, to be honest, I have been. Governor John Hickenlooper, who initially opposed legalization, now says he sees how it can work for those over 65. For seniors that want to kind of relax and, and don't want to use alcohol, this is a choice that maybe that they will embrace more than others. And that could tip the balance this fall when states across the country vote on legalizing marijuana. Seniors seem to be people who vote more often and have some influence. Is it going to have some effect? Well, that's a, 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 an interesting point, and I think you're probably right. The perception against legalizing marijuana, which, you know, historically in this state, when we passed it, seniors were probably the most adamant against it. Uh, and if more are using it, then that probably is going to change and probably won't just be in Colorado, it will probably change across the country. California, the first state to legalize medical marijuana, this fall may vote to approve pot for recreational use, making it even easier for pro-pot folks like Sue Taylor If I have back pain, if I overdo it at the gym to get access to the drug they now consider a vital weapon in their battle against the aches and pains of aging. Seniors don't want to get high, they want to get well. Mm -hmm. And the cannabis helps. Ahead, a tall tale. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. May 1st, 1931, 85 years ago today. The day things started looking up during the deepest depths of the Great Depression. For that was the day the Empire State Building opened for business in New York City. Rising above New York's glamorous skyline is the Empire State Building, a man-made tower of steel. Construction had begun the year before, on St. Patrick's Day. In contrast to the economic stagnation all around it, the Empire State Project was a model of productivity. The tower rose at the phenomenal rate of four and a half stories a week. We are about to officially open the Empire State Building. On dedication day, ribbon-cutting honors went to the granddaughters of former New York Governor Al Smith, the new building's top executive. The tallest building in the world at the time, the Empire State checked in at 1,250 feet, 102 stories in all. Its profile got a further boost in 1933, when King Kong memorably climbed to the top. In 1945, the building made headlines again. Flaming oil and gasoline poured a blackened pall of smoke over the streets of New York. When a B-25 bomber, lost in morning fog, crashed into its 79th floor, killing 14 people. The building survived the blow, and five years later it grew some 200 feet with the addition of a broadcasting antenna. 
The Empire State Building reigned unchallenged as the world's tallest for some 40 years, until New York's original World Trade Center surpassed it in 1972. Since then, many other skyscrapers around the world, including the newest World Trade Center, have soared past the Empire State. Still, with a recently outfitted system of LED lights, it remains one of the world's most beloved skyscrapers, visited since its opening by well over 100 million tourists. Not to mention that one very large ape. Most people up here are adventurous or crazy or, <laughs> or both. <laughs> Get your passport ready. We're off to the Northwest Angle next. When does a borderline confuse things rather than clearly define them? When it's the border our Lee Cowan has been inspecting, that's when. The sound of distant deer hunters is about all you'll hear along this remote tree-lined corridor, a stretch of the longest land border between two countries. On one side, Canada. On the other, the U.S. But this lonely spot is also the gateway to an American geographic oddity, Minnesota's Northwest Angle. Most people up here are adventurous or crazy or, <laughs> or both. <laughs> On a map, it looks as if someone put a substantial part of Minnesota in Canada by mistake. In fact, it was a mistake. Made in 1783 during the Treaty of Paris, the border being drawn between the U.S. and then Britain was supposed to cut through Lake of the Woods at a northwest angle, hence the name. Problem was, the map the Founding Fathers used of Lake of the Woods was completely wrong. The lake actually looks like this. They were way off, but that weird boundary bump stuck. Ever since, the angle, as locals like to call it, has remained an outlier. The only overland route to this part of Minnesota is actually through Canada on a gravel road. There's no fence, no guard, no official looking anything, really, until you come upon this shed called Jim's Corner. Passport? It houses a video phone so that arriving travelers like us can check in with U.S. immigration before driving on. There's no grocery store, no hospital, no theater, no fast food restaurant, not even a single traffic light. It's lucky to have a post office. This is gonna go good. But what it does have... <laughs> what the heck you got, Dan? I think I got a tiger by the tail. <laughs> ...is fish. <laughs> the sprawling, chilly waters of Lake of the Woods offer some of the best walleye fishing in all of North America. Nice fish! Most come here to put a hook in the water and then go home. But there's about 60 or so hardy Minnesotans who live in the angle year-round, many of whom run fishing lodges like Jason and Lisa Goulet. It takes a unique blend of personality traits to really make a go of this. Making a go of it here usually means leaving here. Even the most mundane tasks involve a certain amount of shuttle diplomacy. Grocery shopping is once a week, and that's an hour and 15 minutes one way. First, residents have to notify Canadian authorities that they're about to cross the border. I'm at Jim's Corner, and I'm heading into the world border. Then. It's a 60-mile or so trek through Canada back to the U.S. boundary line to cross back into Minnesota and the nearest town. It's pretty much takes up your day. I mean, I realize it's only a 150-mile round trip or whatever, but with all your stops, I mean, it's five, six hours every, every time. The Goulets, at least, have help in managing this lifestyle. They have eight kids. Yes, eight. The girls, all seven of them, help out their mom making custom quilts. All right, bud, you can take over on these if you want. While Jack, their only boy, helps his dad with the ice fishing shacks. The Goulet's brood make up about a third of the student body at the Angle's tiny one-room schoolhouse, Minnesota's last. Wow, good. You're picking these up. Linda Lemie has been teaching here for 30 years, even teaching her own children whom she raised in the angle, too. To have a slumber party, you know, my girls were just so disappointed because their friends had to have a passport if they wanted to come up for a slumber party. Just for a slumber yes, party. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it, it is different, but we've just 
you know, gotten used to it, and it just seems uh, normal. <laughs> there isn't room to house high school students here, though. For that, the older kids have to border hop. For some, it starts long before dawn. They arrive by boat from some of the Angles Islands, that are also part of the U.S., to catch a school bus. A few stops later, the driver finds himself at that roadside video phone. Hello, I'm calling from Jim's Corner. Reporting the names of every student on the bus. Carlson, Megan. Heading to their Minnesota high school by way of Canada in the dark. By sunup, we got to wondering if maybe life would be easier if the angle were just part of Canada. Well, turns out they tried that back in the 90s. It is a part of the United States called the Northwest Angle. The angle made big news when it threatened to secede from the U.S. over a fish dispute. Turns out that walleye caught on the Canadian side of the lake couldn't be brought back to the U.S. side. And that made fisherman and Northwest Angle resident Gary Dietzler pretty mad. Did you ever imagine that it would become this big trade no, dispute? No, <laughs> We were just trying to get a couple fish. <laughs> Keep the resort going. <laughs> it was partly his idea to join Canada, mainly as a stunt to get publicity for the fishermen's cause. And it worked. The Great Walleye War, as it came to be known, ended amicably. The Northwest Angle remained part of the U.S., and the walleye's nationality seemed to matter no more. Since then, things have remained as they usually are here, quiet and serene and remote. The Northwest Angle may be an orphan of the Atlas, but that's just the way the folks at the top of the nation like it. Still to come, singer Mark Anthony. But first... How can evangelicals be pro-life and pro-gun? A minister chooses life. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Sunday morning on CBS. Here again is Jane Pauley. For the past few months, we've been examining the role of guns in our society. Whether or not to own a gun is one of the life choices many people face. And as Mo Rocca tells us, it's a choice one evangelical minister is determined to make a matter of conscience. I am here to make a statement about the, the integrity and the value of every human life, regardless of its condition of dependency. For more than 20 years, Reverend Robert Schenck has been a leading opponent of abortion. Abortion results in a dead baby. A fighter on the front lines of the culture wars. But recently, the Reverend says he's had a revelation. God and guns, a Christmas sermon. How can evangelicals be pro-life and pro-gun? That's put him on the other side of the aisle on one fundamental issue, guns. Who will ultimately save us, Christ or a Glock? A man or woman who wants to defend his or her family legally owns a firearm in case someone comes into their home. How is that unchristian? Well. First of all, you're making an immediate decision uh, that if someone invades your home, they are going to die. So you are ready to kill another human being in your home. That brings about a big ethical question for the Christian. And we're told in the Bible, we're even to love our enemies. Even a potential intruder, someone who's, who Absolutely. comes into your home to hurt you? Is it always God's will that I survive a violent confrontation with another human being? I'm not sure that's always God's will. Schenck is not a pacifist, nor is he opposed to guns for hunting. The problem, he says, is civilians using guns for self-defense. His conversion on the issue is the subject of the documentary, The Armor of Light, airing May 10th on PBS. Is that a, a pro-life ethic? In it, we witness his disagreements with fellow evangelicals. Don't own one. 
Okay, Rob, you're afraid of firearms. Don't own one. You're afraid Troy, of guns. Listen, you leave them to other people. You know I'm not one of the reasons that I'm afraid I'm of them? I'm not afraid of them. Because I don't trust myself. In the moment of crisis, an armed society is a polite society. It's a Disney movie, though not from the Disney you know. Director Abigail Disney is Walt Disney's grandniece. She's also a liberal supporter of abortion rights, who struck up an unlikely friendship with Rob Shank. So I was expecting a fire-breathing dragon. I was expecting somebody I really didn't like. And how soon did those feelings left? Instantaneously. <laughs> he was so warm. Reverend Schenk can be full of surprises. He was raised Jewish, which is why he says he's pro-life. Dad gave all of his children a thorough education in the Holocaust. I can remember being, oh, maybe six or seven years old, looking at the photos of mass graves. He emphasized how critical it was to respect the value of every human life. At 17, he converted to Christianity, and by the early 1990s was a conservative evangelical minister. He led protests at Dr. Barnett Slepian's Buffalo Clinic. Years later, Slepian, who performed abortions, was shot and killed by a pro-life activist. Are you haunted by the murder of Dr. Slepian? I'm haunted not just by the murder of Dr. Schleppian, which is enough, but by the other murders committed in the name of a pro-life cause. And I worked very hard at compartmentalizing that, kind of putting it on a shelf and saying, well, someday I'll address that. That day came in 2013, when a gunman killed 12 people at the Washington Navy Yard, right in Schenck's neighborhood. And it was within a stone's throw of my house. I could see it from my living room window. He's now traveling the country, evangelizing about what he says it means to be pro-life and about where Christians should not be turning for spiritual guidance. I'm concerned about the NRA promoting the idea that the best way to solve the most vexing problems in our society is to be prepared to shoot people dead. Do you want to see gun laws change? I have no legislative agenda. I'm a minister. For me, the most powerful part of it is the conscience, and that's the heart, and that's the mind, and that's where I'm going right now. As for Abigail Disney, since becoming friends with Reverend Shank, she's had a conversion of her own. I went back to this church that someone had told me about, and all of a sudden on Sunday morning, I find myself looking forward to going to church. So you are going to church now? I am in church now. And would you call yourself a Christian? Yes. I call myself, I think I've always been willing to call myself a Christian, um, but you hear all the tentativeness, right? So you're a Christian working on not apologizing for going to church. Yes, working hard. <laughs> Coming up, is this our national mammal? It happened this past week. Recognition at long last for a beloved but nearly decimated beast. Both the House and Senate approved legislation designating the bison as the national mammal of the United States. The measure now goes to the president for his signature. Once numbered in the millions, bison, also known as buffalo, long ruled the Great Plains. But beginning in the 19th century, Overhunting to the point of mass slaughter nearly wiped the bison off the face of the earth. By the time protective legislation was passed in the late 1800s, only a thousand or so survived. Still, the mystique of the bison never faded. It graces the seal of the Federal Department of the Interior, not to mention the state flags of Wyoming and Kansas. And from 1913 to 1938, there was a buffalo on the back of every nickel struck by the U.S. Mint. Today, tens of thousands of buffalo roam the American West once more. Some 200,000 others can be found in commercial herds. 
not quite a full restoration, but a return of the bison to its rightful place by any measure. This was Lena Horn's house. Stepping and out. Fats Waller, James Brown. With Anthony Mason, next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. To be asked to walk this way is no idle challenge when it involves walking down every last street in New York City. Anthony Mason can tell us all about that. When Bill Helmreich set off to see New York City, not just the landmarks we know, but the hidden gems, he knew it would be a long journey. So this is where you started on your walk. Right. It's amazing how quickly it all adds up. <laughs> and then... What did it add up to in the end? 6,048 miles. 6,048 miles. That is like walking to Los Angeles and back as the crow flies and then another 971 miles to St. Louis. <laughs> It was really a long walk. It had to be if his mission was to write a book called The New York Nobody Knows. It's part of a preserve here. That he has, took his uh, first steps near the city's dogs, outer wonders, border in Queens. Uh, you must have worn out a few pairs of shoes. Nine. Nine. Look, it's 30 miles a week, uh -huh. 120 a month, 1,500 a year, and in four years you're at 6,000. This is Aurora Pond. A professor of sociology at City College, the 70-year-old Helmreich walked almost every street, nearly 125,000 blocks, from the best known, like Times Square in Manhattan, to the most remote. Yes, deep in the Bronx, New York has a waterfall. The idea for Helmreich's book came from a game he played as a boy. His father called it Last Stop. They'd hop the subway near their Manhattan apartment and ride it till the end of the line, then wander the city from there. After we ran out of the last stop, we go to the second to last stop, and then we go to the third last stop, and each time it was totally, totally different. For four years, through all four seasons, in all kinds of weather, Helmreich systematically walked the city, taking notes as he went about the places he saw and the people he met. If I could say anything about this city that sums it up is that it's the greatest outdoor museum in the world. It's a, a whole discovery. In an industrial neighborhood in Bushwick, Brooklyn, he stumbled on this art alley, an open-air explosion of expression. When you walk every block in New York, you stumble upon things you would have never stumbled upon before. I couldn't believe that there was this fantastic place here filled with all sorts of murals. More than 100 of them. He met local restaurant owner James Lawrence, who explained how it started. We just wanted to do something to start improving the look of the area. And as soon as we put up a few murals along this one wall, it just kind of took off and we started getting permission from more and more landlords and artists started showing up wanting to do murals and it's really just kind of grown out of control. All of this has happened in what, about three years? Yeah, wow. yeah, it's pretty crazy. Further into Brooklyn, in Bensonhurst, on an otherwise quiet street, he found this inviting yard filled with superheroes and villains, pop icons and starlets, an homage to nostalgia known as Steve's Playland. This is Steve's Playland, and this is Steve. How are you? <laughs> How are you, Steve? How are you? Hey, Steve. Steve. How you doing? How, you doing? How long have you had this place, Steve? Going on 14 years now. And, and what's the idea behind all this? What do you... Well, originally it started out just for me personally to bring back uh, a lot of my childhood memories. I tried to bring it back to me physically in, in this garage. So when I go in there, it sets me back in time. Steve Campanilla's personal playland is open to anyone who happens to stop by. You must have sunk a small fortune into this, Steve. I did, but I don't think of it monetarily. This, this is strictly for my personal pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I get a lot of joy out of doing it, and I get a lot of joy out of coming in here and just gazing now and then. In the middle of the Bronx, Helmreich learned about this church 
where exorcisms were once performed. And this is, it's a bike shop. This is a special bike shop because it's run by a man who's sort of a doctor of bicycles. I can actually feel his wheels touching the rubbers. In Harlem, he found Donald Childs, who diagnoses a bicycle's problems with his fingers, or a stethoscope. You know, I always wanted to be a doctor, but I never thought I was going to be a doctor in bikes. And everywhere I go, people say, hey, doctor. And out in the St. Albans neighborhood of Queens, you must take the A train. He wandered through a lost center of black culture. So, all these people lived here? Yes, they all lived here. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Lena Horne, John Coltrane. Fats Waller, James Brown. And it was because of this line, really? In large part, this took them right into New York City, and then it was an easy hop to the Savoy, into the Roseland, mm -hmm. where they performed. It's an incredible concentration of talent in one area. It really is. When Helmreich had finally exhausted every corner of New York City, I ended up here. He came to the end of the road in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. This was mile 6,048. And I approached it feeling, uh, I wouldn't say relief, I felt exuberant. And when I looked to the left and I saw the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building and all the iconic structures of New York City of Manhattan, I felt uh, this was a very, very fitting place to end the journey. But the New York Nobody Knows has proved so popular, Bill Helmreich has been commissioned to write separate guides for each of the city's five boroughs. So he's off again on another journey that he expects will keep him walking for another decade. Coming up, love you. Love you. Joe Cerna Thank you, me. tells it to the judge. Tell it to the judge. Is legal advice that really works when the judge is the one Steve Hartman recently watched in action? Inside the county courthouse in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Judge Lou Oliveira made headlines with an unusual decision. You may be seated. A few years ago, Joe Cerna was arrested for drunk driving. As part of his probation, he wasn't allowed to drink. So when he lied about a recent urine test, the judge felt he had no choice. I gave Joe a night in jail because he had to be held accountable. It was just one night, but as he entered the cell, Joe says he knew it would be one of the longest nights of his life. When I walked into the jail cell and they closed the door behind me, I started feeling this, um, anxiety. It came back. It came back. A flashback. Retired Army Sergeant First Class Joe Cerna did three tours in Afghanistan and has two Purple Hearts to show for it. The Green Beret survived an IED and a suicide bomber. But he says his scariest moment was the night he was riding in a truck with three other soldiers. What happened? We were, we were following the, the creek and uh, the road gave way. And um, the vehicle went in the creek. Truck started filling with water? Yeah. All hope was lost. Trapped and unable to move, Joe felt the water rising, past his legs, then waist and neck, until finally it stopped at his chin. How many guys got out of that truck? Alive? Yeah. Just me. I was a sole survivor. Joe says it still haunts him. So I suffer from PTSD. Among his issues, a fear of being in small, cramped places. I knew what Joe was going through, and I knew Joe's history, and he had to be held accountable, but I just felt I had to go with him. I felt I had to go with him. And so, a few minutes after Joe was locked up, Judge Lou Oliveira surprised the man he sent to jail by joining him for the entire night. We ate meatloaf, and uh, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about our families. And the walls got further apart? The walls just got, they, they, they didn't exist anymore. He brought me back to North Carolina 
from being in a truck in Afghanistan. That meant so much to me, sir. This past week, Joe promised the judge no more mess-ups. I don't want to let you down, ever. It's not how law and order usually works. But sometimes jail is not what a man needs. Sometimes the best sentence love you. Love you, is compassion. Thank you, breathe me. Still to come, singer Mark Anthony. What were your dreams early on? For the record. To get out of the neighborhood. And later. On average, we'd get hit, you know, three to four times a week. Defending combat outpost Keating. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. I Need to Know was a big hit for Mark Anthony way back in 1999. All these years later, he's still thrilling audiences and speaking his mind. Most recently, he's been speaking to our Tracy Smith. For the record. Off stage, he seems almost like the rest of us mortals, more a compact bundle of nerves than an international superstar. But when Mark Anthony stands in the spotlight and sings, the transformation happens. He becomes larger than life. Each song is like a short movie. Each character is different. Those hot and heart-melting characters have made Mark Anthony the best-selling salsa artist in history. Now, what are we looking at here? Stuff we've collected over the years, and, uh, you know, I look at it, and it's like a snapshot of why I'm so damn tired all the time. <laughs> With two Grammy Awards, five Latin Grammys, and so many other honors, you can't really fit them on just one wall. When he's performing, it feels like he's bearing his soul. But in real life, Mark Anthony is intensely private and almost always shields his eyes in trademark dark glasses. I'm from the streets of New York, and, and uh, I have a tattoo in my handwriting that I say, those who say don't know, those who know, don't say. Your power and influence is largely based on what a steel trap your mouth is. Steel trap or no, Anthony's private life has gotten plenty of attention. No me ames porque pienses que parezco diferente. Especially his marriage to and split from Jennifer Lopez, with whom he has two kids. I have to say that every time that I tell somebody I'm interviewing Mark Anthony, first thing is, love him, and second thing is, are you going to ask him about J-Lo? Does that drive you crazy? No, it, 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 I have a different perspective. I mean, we were married, what, seven, eight years? I, I mean, she's, she's the mother of my children. I'm proud of it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be in the same sentence as someone who's accomplished what she's accomplished and, and uh, gave me a big part of her life. And it's not a bad thing, right? It, trust me, it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony's since remarried to Venezuelan model Shannon DeLima. And truth is, the tabloid stuff isn't nearly as interesting as what Mark Anthony's been able to accomplish on his own. In 1968, to Puerto Rican parents, Anthony grew up in New York's Spanish Harlem. His dad had hopes of being a musician, but paid the bills by working in a hospital lunchroom. What were your dreams early on? To get out of the neighborhood. Anthony figured out in order to change where he was, he needed to change who he was. What kind of kid were you? To my mom, I was a pain in the ass. To my dad, the light of his eyes. And uh, to me, I was awkward. Awkward? Yeah. My dad always told me, and, and it's God's honest truth, son, we're ugly. Work on your personality. No. I swear. He said that The too. best thing he ever told me. What happened was I, I'd stutter, and I, and I really couldn't put a sentence together. And so, but when I sang, I didn't stutter. The stutter went away. Yeah. 
And that was my uh, preferred way of uh, communicating. As a teenager, he sang in commercials and offered to work for free as a backup singer for groups like Menudo. Before I had my first single, I had worked on over 300 records. So by the time that first single came out... I had all the experience in the world. That first Spanish-language album took off in 1993. And since then, he's had hits in both Spanish and English, selling more than 12 million records worldwide. When you sing He has a line of clothing at Kohl's and owns a piece of the Miami Dolphins. And thanks to his business sense, he gets frequent calls from other artists asking him for advice. I was always a phone call away. So you were kind of tutoring people. Yeah, mentoring. And we're just beginning. It's my baby. So Anthony founded Magnus Media. Right, let me work on an endorsement deal. To help fellow musicians and athletes target the $1.5 trillion Latinos spend each year. Magnus was born out of frustration, and, and um, I saw an absolute need for quality representation. I was doing it anyway. I, I was advising them on a daily basis as to how to streamline their business. The Miami offices are decorated with Anthony's rather eclectic collections. Badges, hats, military uniforms. I'm a sort of a history of a fanatic. It's very easy to imagine, you know, who wore that. You know, somebody earned that. I have to say it. Oh, You're a man of many hats. <laughs> One hat he wears proudly, philanthropist. All this started as a dream, and it became a reality. He has built three orphanages so far in the Dominican Republic, Colombia, and Mexico, and three more are under construction. The fact that Mark, who's been my friend for more than 20 years, has devoted himself to this, he is really wonderful. It all started with a visit he made to a not-so-wonderful orphanage several years ago. It was basically a three-bedroom house with 47 kids, I believe, babies sleeping under the beds, uh, on the floor. What really hit me was just a lack of dignity. As long as I have a voice, as long as I can do something, I'm going to do it. Anthony's determined to use his voice in other ways, too. At a recent concert in Madison Square Garden, he made a speech that started with being a proud Latino. Another thing is to say that I'm Latino in the United States of America. And ended with... Donald Trump. A slam at Donald Trump. Why'd you feel like you needed to say something? I wasn't speaking for myself. I was speaking for my people. There's so many dreamers out there, and... and uh, um, I represent them, being born American, but being identified as a Latino in my heart, my soul, my upbringing, everything I am. You mess with a Latino, you're messing with me. Still, while Anthony's proud of the power he's earned, he says it came at a price. The one regret uh, would be that what I chose to do took so much of my time. What I would have done to have been a stay-at-home dad and just witness every second of everything. You sort of start to wonder, was it all worth it? How do you answer that? Um, I don't think you do. Or maybe the answer's in Mark Anthony's music and all it's allowed him to become. I have nothing to complain about. As long as your energy goes towards making something better, it's worth the sacrifice. We gather round the Maypole next. Our Sunday morning milepost, a lasting impression from a foregone first of May. The season actually begins in March, but there was a time this day marked the true spring awakening, May Day. And it was here long before any association to arms or the military or intimidating superpowers. 
at its center, the Maypole. Perhaps you recall it. Maybe you even danced around one. The tradition spans centuries and continents, with its origins as varied as the costumes. Popular at campgrounds as well as campuses, the Maypole even did a cameo on the lawn of the White House. You can also find the Maypole on the cover of magazines, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Better Homes and Gardens. There we go, keep going. These days, it's a faded custom, but in a few places across the country, there are signs of a comeback. In fact, at Bryn Mawr College near Philadelphia, it's never gone away. That's Katherine Hepburn when she was a Bryn Mawr student in 1928, performing in a May Day play. Ahead, how Sergeant Clint Romachet earned his Medal of Honor. The mentality was, well, we can either sit here and, and die in our last final positions, or we can go out in a blaze of glory. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Combat Outpost Keating was a remote U.S. Army position in Afghanistan that attracted a Taliban attack nearly seven years ago. The medal one of its defenders earned that day still weighs heavily on its recipient, as David Martin now tells us. On his third combat tour, Sergeant Clint Romache, by his own description, a tiny cog nestled deep inside the American war machine, earned the Medal of Honor for his actions in Afghanistan. I, I grew up in a family of, of military service. Uh, my grandfather was... Now sporting a full beard, he tells audiences wearing the medal is a burden. These things aren't given out when something went right. A lot of stuff went wrong. Um, and, it, and it's a heavy weight at sometimes. Eight of his buddies were killed on the day in 2009 when he earned his medal defending an outpost in Afghanistan, which, according to an Army investigation, had no tactical or strategic value. Now, seven years later, he's written a book about it, a saga whose characters are less heroic than one might wish, exceptionally ordinary men who were put to an extraordinary test. In a place called Combat Outpost Keating in a remote Afghan valley. In Romache's words, the most remote, precarious, and tactically screwed combat outpost in all of Afghanistan. You never take the low ground. You always take the high ground. We're here doing this. This is, this is insane. This is what Keating looked like to the Taliban who were taking their own videos. When you went out on patrol up to the high ground, you saw what the Taliban was seeing of Keating. Yes. What did it look like from the enemy's point of view? At times, it looked like fish in a barrel. As an Army sergeant, the only things Romache could control were the training of his men and their attitude, distilled in the motto, it doesn't get better. That was the mentality. Yeah, this sucks, but we can't control it. We can't affect it. Starting long before Romache's platoon arrived, the Taliban routinely fired down on Keating from the heights. On average, we'd get hit, you know, three to four times a week. So what was the, uh, the purpose of those attacks? They were testing us to see what our battle plans were, how we would react, what our response times were. There were 52 American soldiers at the camp and six main fighting positions. The attack came at 5.59 in the morning of October 3rd, 2009. It wasn't uncommon to get shot at at that time in the morning. Um, it was kind of like a wake-up call most mornings. But this morning was different and it was all recorded by the Taliban. The Taliban had opened up on the six main fighting positions, pinning them down so they could not return fire. Keating sent out its first call for help three minutes after the attack began. Fire coming from everywhere. We need something. Soldiers not pinned down had to pull back from the perimeter to a cluster of buildings at the center of camp, which they called the Alamo position. And the call had kind of came out that we were still going to go to what we called the Alamo position. The Alamo position, that doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> so what did you think when you got the order? I really didn't like that idea. To me, it f felt like we were giving up, that we were kind of waving the white flag and admitting defeat. 
um, in that moment of time. When you pull back into the Alamo position, you must have had to leave a bunch of guys out there. Yep. All the guys on the perimeter. Yeah, we knew we were leaving, you know, nine guys isolated on their own, um, which is a gut-wrenching feeling to, to sit there and kind of have to call up another man and say, hey, you're going to have to hold on tight for a second. And we're hoping to get back to you, but this might be the last time we, we say anything across the radio. Romache came up with a desperate plan. We can either sit here and, and die in our last final positions, or we can go out in a blaze of glory. He turned to Lieutenant Andrew Bunderman, the officer in charge. Told him we need to take this bitch back. That was the mission? Yes. Short and to the point. But then you got to get men to follow you out there. Yes. It's always a scary thing about being a leader. Were you sure they were going to follow? All I could do is ask. What happened when you asked for volunteers? Had five guys stand up. Didn't ask, what are we volunteering for? Didn't ask any of that. They just stood up. Low on bullets, they first ran toward the front gate where their ammo dump was located. How close is the enemy? Um, closer than what I ever thought I'd, I'd see them, 10, 15 feet away. The Taliban were inside the camp's perimeter, and the command center sent out this chilling message. Enemy in the wire, enemy in the wire. One hour and 11 minutes into the attack, the first Apache helicopter gunships arrived overhead to find Keating in flames. Had they arrived five minutes later, Romache believes, Keating would have been overrun. I just watched these three guys just walk on in like my game was over. The, the fighting was already done. I mean, they just literally strolled on. They don't understand we're still here, we're still fighting. You know, their mistake. You're not gonna just stroll in here like you own the place. Like, you, you don't have a care in the world because we're about to make you care. The Apaches were followed by a B-1 bomber which leveled a village where much of the Taliban fire was coming from. How far was the, uh, the village from, from where you were? It was less than 200 meters from their closest building to our perimeter. And they were dropping what kind of weapons? 500 pounders to 2,000 pounders. It seems awfully close. <laughs> it was. Um, you know, danger close for a 2,000 pounder is 1,000 meters. We would rather take our chances with our own bombs than, than be shot by the enemy. Finally, this message went out. Keating reports negative contact with the enemy. But seven Americans lay dead and one, Stefan Mace, the platoon cut-up, was gravely wounded. We finally had that medevac coming in and Mace was bagged up and ready to be put on it, still conscious. We all thought he was gonna make it. I mean, that was a, that was such a high moment with uh, everything that had happened, that Mace was gonna make it. Sounds like at the end, the battle came down to saving Private Mace. That's, that's what we were all hoping for. So what happened? They attempted to do surgery on him, but it was just too late. You know, I think those medics did a whole lot for Mace, but I think it was Mace that held on to life for as long as he did until he left. Once he left his brothers, he knew he could go home. This battle was in 2009, right? Yes. So we're going on seven years. Oh, yeah. Still with you, isn't it? I hope it never leaves. Three years after the battle, Romache was awarded the Medal of Honor, which struck him as both inappropriate and wrong. It boils down to why me? I didn't do anything special. Just did a job like 52 other guys there were doing that day and eight that did way more than I ever was asked of. I mean, why me? Because you were the one 
that led the counterattack. I think you could have replaced me with any other red-blooded American soldier. There would have been another one that would have stepped up and done the same thing. After the battle, all the soldiers were ordered to abandon Keating, and the outpost they had fought so desperately to defend was leveled by American bombs. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.